When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings, listeners. Today I'm going to be talking to Matthew Owens, a professor of space physics from the Department of Meteorology at the University of Reading, who has been studying the history of solar storms over the last 150 years. So, Matthew, how do you go about investigating storms that happened 150 years ago? Well, we we have to look at indirect data, so proxy data. Um, So over the last 50, 60 years, we've had spacecraft up in around earth uh, and so we have direct measurements of the sun's magnetic field or the solar wind but if we want to go back further than that the best observations we have come from ground-based magnetometers so these are very sensitive compasses basically on the earth's surface and they measure how disturbed the earth's magnetic field is and that tells us something about what's going on out in space so the we start with a record that was uh, the Victorian scientists started putting it together 150 years ago. I doubt they had this in mind when, uh, when they were putting <laughs> it together, but having continuous observations over that time period is so valuable. So is that why it's 150 years ago? Because that was when the first started being taken. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if we want to go back further than that, we have to go to even more indirect proxies. So we use things like the sunspot record that can take us back about 400 years back to Galileo's first observations. And then back further than that, we can use ice cores and tree trunk data. But that's a very indirect measure of what's going on in space. And so you've you've been looking at this like 150 years worth of information. What has this actually taught you? Well, the thing we really want to know about for space weather Space weather has damaging effects on our modern technologies, which, again, those Victorian scientists probably didn't foresee. Um, What we really want to know is when the really big space weather events are going to hit, because they're the ones that do the big damage. But of course, the same is true in terrestrial weather. The, The big events are rare. And so if you want to learn about them, you have to use very, very long records. So we're going to this 150-year record. Of course, the kind of events we want to know about only happen once every 100 years or so. So we still only have very, very few observations. 
Um, so it's it's a thorny issue to to deal with. And why? So you, you've been looking for these these kinds of extreme events. Have you been able to tell anything about like how often these things occur? Yes. So so what, we have very few observations, but what we do is is test them against models of of when we think observation of when these big storms should occur. Um, and, and by comparing with our, our probability models, we're able to test different hypotheses about when we think these events will occur. So we can ask, are the, observa- are the few observations we do have, are they consistent with extreme events just occurring randomly at any, any old time? Or are they, are they more likely to cluster at different uh, particular times? And there does appear to be some clustering in the data which is a really useful result to have. Whenabouts do they cluster? I think, I think an analogy here is a good thing to have. So, so if, you want to know, if you want to know whether to go out camping tomorrow, you'll look at the weather forecast, um, which is, it tells you a couple of days in the future. And we have that for space weather too. So we, do, we use big computer simulations to tell us about the space weather a few days ahead. But if, say, you're planning your wedding for next year, you you can't go to a, a, you're not going to have a forecast for a particular day in a year's time, but you do know that on average, it's less likely to rain in the summer than it is in the winter. And so your plan for the summer rather than winter. And so what we wanted to know for space weather is whether these, these big extreme events um, cluster in the solar seasons. So there are sunspots on the sun, they wax and wane every 11 years. And we've shown that these these extreme space weather events are more likely at the peak of the sunspot cycles when you've got lots of uh, sunspots on the sun. So, so that kind of advanced predictability is really useful if you're if you're planning things like man uh, crewed space missions or um, or maintenance to your power grid or anything like that that you want to plan years ahead. Um, having some kind of probabilistic information is useful. So basically, best to avoid the the peak of the the solar cycle, which is, I believe, going to be a bit of a problem potentially for the Artemis missions. Yeah, that's right. So so we're currently at solar minimum, so things are nice and quiet at the moment. Um, but Artemis was originally scheduled to to first land on the moon uh, in twenty twenty four. It's slipping back a bit now as these things always do even without global pandemic the artemis missions are nasa's plans to have crewed missions to the moons just in case any of our listeners don't know that's correct yeah sorry uh, and from there hopefully onwards to to mars ultimately um but yeah so so it's looking like the middle of the decade is the most likely time um of course that will probably be right at solar maximum so, so space weather will be an issue, mm-hmm. but space weather's the the risk never goes away, even at solar minimum. So, the sun can always surprise us with a big event. It's just that they're more probable at solar maximum than at solar minimum. And we've we've sort of touched on the fact that space weather does cause problems for for us here on Earth and and for astronauts in space. What exactly are those issues that it causes? Well, there's quite a few, actually. Um, I mean, thinking about crewed missions to, to the moon, the thing you're really worried about there is the radiation coming from the sun. So 
Uh, that's a direct health threat to uh, astronauts. And in particular, between Apollo 16 and 17, there was a really big uh, solar storm, very high radiation levels that we know about now that that probably would have been fatal to to astronauts outside of the Earth's magnetosphere at the time. So so there is that health issue. Um, Of course, down on the surface of the Earth, we're fine. But uh, as you get to increasing altitude, it becomes more of a problem. But the big one that, that we've been concerned about recently is the the threat to the power grid so a big solar storm disturbs the earth's magnetic field that generates currents in in the earth's atmosphere and in, in the earth's surface and they can knock out power transformers and of course the power grid is is so essential to everything that we do um, and the time to replace transformers is pretty long you can't just buy these things from amazon um, and so the, the downtime for the power grid is potentially very large. And that, that's a really significant worry. So you've been talking about predicting these things on, on very long time scales of like knowing when is the weather likely to be shiny and when is it going to be stormy? Um, but is there any way of, of predicting them on, on shorter time scales or ways to see these things coming? Yeah, so... So space weather kind of occurs on three timescales, actually. So the, the first thing we know that there's something going on on the sun is we see a solar flare. And so that is a brightening on the, the solar surface. You can see it in white light sometimes for the very big events, but normally it's x-rays. Of course, those take eight minutes to reach us. Um, but by the time they've reached us, it, it, that's the first indication we have that it's happening. So you don't really get any warning of that. Then there's the radiation that I talked about that has the health threat. Those are particles that are moving fairly close to the speed of light. And so you, you don't get much warning of those either, you know, maybe tens of minutes. Um, but the thing that, that threatens the power grid is the actual eruption from the sun. It's moving at about a million kilometers an hour or so. Um, sorry. Yeah, a million kilometers an hour, about a thousand kilometers a second, something like that. Um, so that takes about between a day to four days to arrive. And so you do get some advance warning of that. Uh, and we have, much like numerical weather prediction, we have big computer simulations that, that try and forecast when these things will arrive uh, to varying degrees of accuracy, I would say. So when you see these these big storms occurring, what kind of size do they really start becoming something that we need to worry about it's not so well it's more to do with how energetic they are so so the faster they're moving the more of a danger they are and so the less warning time we also get because they get here quicker so that that is a thorny issue what we really worry about is the magnetic field that's inside them and in particular we're worried about how that magnetic field is orientated so if the field is is opposite to the Earth's own field, then that gives it the, the ability to really energize the Earth's magnetic system, which is when the power grid is, is under threat. And, and working out how that field is orientated is, is really difficult. We, we don't have any good observations of that close to the sun. Um, so that that's the kind of big problem in space weather forecasting is how to work out 
what the magnetic field is like inside these solar storms before they reach us. And I suppose that leads into my next question of, is there any ideas about why these storms seem to happen around the solar maximum? I mean, it makes some sense. So the sun's magnetic field is just generally stronger uh, at solar maximum. And these things, so you've got this huge volume of material that you need to throw away from the sun. And the sun has a very strong gravitational field. So you need a lot of energy to do that. And that energy comes from the sun's magnetic field. So the stronger the sun's magnetic field is, the more ability you've got to do that. So it makes some sense there. The sun's magnetic field is also more complex when there are a lot of sunspots on the sun. And that complexity sort of twists up the magnetic field and and that allows you to store energy and then release it in one big burst. And so it's that impulsive release of energy that gives us these, these, these extreme space weather events. And now that you've made this association and worked out when exactly or when you think these storms are more likely to happen. Uh, what's the kind of next stage of your, your research? What's the next project? Well, we're always trying to improve the sort of one to four day forecasts. And so we have a new um, model for that, um, that we're currently testing with the Met Office um, that will hopefully go into their operation. So the Met Office, the UK Met Office, are operationally predicting space weather and so we hope it will. they will adopt this new model and that will help with um, short-term forecasting. On the longer term, um, we'd really like better statistics. So the conclusions we've drawn are based on 150 years of data. And, and that, in, in space weather terms, or at least in extreme space weather terms, is not that long a data set. And so we're going to start looking at the even more indirect proxies such as uh, ice cores and tree trunks that, that tell us something about the, the space radiation environment before we had human records. And what is, what is it that you actually look for in those, those ice cores and tree trunks? So what we're looking for is when, when radiation enters the Earth's atmosphere, it um, collides with molecules in the Earth's atmosphere and it forms isotopes. So, so um, nuclear nuclei that don't naturally exist and so you will have heard of carbon 14 probably that's how what we base carbon dating on that only exists because particles from outside the earth's environment have have undergone nuclear reactions with the earth's atmosphere there's another one called beryllium 10 and these two get they get locked up in tree trunks and in ice cores Uh, and so by by Drilling into ancient trees or drilling down into uh, ice sheets, we can look further back in time and get a record of how the sun was behaving in the past. And, and how far back did those records go? Well, with Carbon 14, we can go back about 10,000 years. Um, it gets difficult before then because of the ice age. And so uh, the Earth's carbon cycle is different in the ice age and it has been in, in the more recent period and so that that's a bit of a limit um, but the problem is with carbon 14 we can only we can only tell about really really large events um, and you want to get enough statistics you want to start looking at slightly smaller events too 
And so the, the beryllium-10 is more useful then, but that only takes us back about a thousand years, um, which, is, which is still extremely valuable. And this seems to be like mostly concentrating around predicting what happened in the, the past. Is most of the, the sort of predictions about space weather long term based on what's, what you've already seen and, and tracking that for to the future rather than knowing the underlying physics? Yeah, so so a lot a lot of it is just statistical, right? We, we've seen these these number of events in the past, therefore we predict those number of events in the future. And the the problem is is that I mean it's a bit like climate change that it's not a stationary problem. You know, if we if you if you take a rainfall record and you say, well, we got extreme rainfall once every ten years in the past, that's not necessarily a good indicator of what will happen future because the Earth's climate is changing. And we're seeing the same problem with space physics in that the last 100 years or so, certainly during the space age when we have very good data, um, solar activity has been unusually high and it's currently declining quite rapidly. Um, Whether it will continue to decline, I I wouldn't bet my house on. but that means that the statistics that we build up in the past aren't necessarily valid for the future. And so what you really want is a, is a first principles physics-based model. Um, and we don't really have that yet. You know, how the, how the solar magnetic field is generated and, and varies from cycle to cycle is not well understood. And so we're some way off that still. If there was uh, some piece of information that you could have that would sort of crack this open so basically like what what is as a solar uh, scientist what's on your your bucket list of what you really wish you could have to help understand what's going on with the sun it's always better observations for me uh, in that you know we have this huge volume from the sun to the earth uh, it's 150 million kilometers from the sun to the earth and we have maybe one or two spacecraft sitting in it. It's like a, you know having one weather station and trying to predict everything for for the entire Earth. Um, and, you know, you base that weather station in Slough, and you're trying to predict the weather in Mozambique or something. It, it's just not tenable. Um, so, just a greater number of observations. And there, there's a, these things are happening. I mean, at the moment, we have Parker Solar Probe that's flying closer to the sun than we've ever gone before, and so that's helping us to understand how the solar wind is generated, um, which will go into those physics-based models that we want for the future. And the other one is is Solar Orbiter, um, which the the really exciting thing about Solar Orbiter is it's going to start looking down on the sun's uh, north and south poles, which we've never had a view of before, because all our telescopes are from Earth, and so they see the solar equator, basically. We really want to know what's going on at the poles because the poles are where all the magnetic action is. So, so though we'll start to get a view of the poles in the next sort of five to 10 years. So it's, it's quite an exciting time to be a solar physicist at the moment. It definitely sounds so. I'm excited to see what comes over the next couple of years. Uh, so thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today, Matthew. It's a pleasure. If you'd like to find out more about how astronomers predict the future of the sun-solar cycle, be sure to pick up the June 2021 issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we have an article from solar scientist Stephanie Yardley as she investigates the processes of forecasting solar activity. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Collie. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify.